Hi everyone, it is Wendy. We're having a slightly different formatted uh, show today. It is going to be another quote-unquote live post-debate discussion, um, but it's got to have a little bit of a twist. So I'm here with Richard. What's up, Richard? Hello, and happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, as always, you're always <laughs> welcome on the show that you're a co-host of. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I'm Wendy, as everyone knows. Uh, so today, instead of talking exclusively about the Democratic debates, which were on Tuesday night and very interesting to watch um, for a variety of reasons that I'll go into a little bit later on um, as needed. But this time around, we're going to do something slightly different because I just really didn't want to talk only about the Democratic, uh, the, not the Democratic platform, but the Democratic Party um debates because after a while this is what our fourth third or fourth debate something like that um and after watching them multiple times especially if you're familiar already with the main candidates platforms or sort of the behavioral ticks of the pla mm -hmm. of some of the candidates like oh, cory booger who like can't do anything but say kumbaya over and over um it becomes a bit frustrating to watch and have to pay attention and take notes and then you know, discuss the issues that they left out every single time. Um, so this time around, what I wanted to do is actually take a look at the platforms and um, programs of third party or alternative parties in the U.S. and see what they had to offer and kind of loosely discuss them today. Um, I should warn everyone or caution everyone, there may be a little bit of extra noise in the background because my dog, Brodinsky, is here hanging out next to me, um, and he has a tendency to make lots of loud noises, um, including what I always say is sort of like a tap dance on the hardwood floor with his paws. Uh, so you may hear him walking around or chewing on stuff or whatever in the background. So my apologies in advance. The mic picks up everything. Um, but yeah, I just, I felt like we needed to to have a loose discussion about, you know, what else is out there? And this is not necessarily to say you shouldn't vote for the Democrats or to tell you how to vote or to tell you not to vote or whatever. None of that. Like, that's not what this is about. It's just more of a, like, just out of curiosity, what are other parties talking about? And what I would say, arguably, you know, what do their platforms offer for the future of the Democratic Party? Specifically because one of the things that stood out to me early on um, of this cycle is the fact that like everyone was talking about the Green New Deal. And I remember when Jill Stein ran in 2016, that was a huge part of her platform. Um, and it wasn't part of the Democratic platform at all. This idea of transitioning workers um, in like the fossil fuel industry into renewable industries was not really on the ticket. And it certainly was not called the Green New Deal. It's something that she kept calling it over and over. Um, so I think it's interesting because it shows us not only sort of like where socialist and actual left ideas are held and like discussed in terms of party politics, but also how they can be um, or like where they're coming from and the source, the genesis of these ideas that sometimes if we're lucky end up getting incorporated into the democratic party um, discussion and platform. So, and these debates as well, obviously. Uh, so I also, the other thing I should put as a caveat here, or a 
disclaimer better <laughs> is that <laughs> I am like that student in college who really wanted to read something and even suggested to the professor, oh, can we read this? And then like, didn't read it in time um, and then didn't or didn't read the the book in full. So I'm completely underprepared right now um, today for reasons that are beyond my control, but I did do a little bit of skimming. Um, so I will be able to interject here and there with some ideas and thoughts about the platforms themselves. Um, and oh, one other thing I should say is the platforms and programs that we read were for the following parties. We read them for the Green Party US, um, the uh, Party of Socialism and Liberation, which is PSL. And we also read the platform of the CPUSA or the Communist Party of the United States of America. Um, we are aware that there are other alternative parties, but these were the first three that kind of stood out to us as left parties um, that had platforms online. Um, I know that there's Workers World Party. There are like several other smaller socialist parties. There are a lot of different parties um, that are sometimes state specific that end up uh, running for or endorsing someone for president. But um, these are the top three. And later on in this, you know, this continuing series about the 2020 election, we will talk more about some of these platforms as time goes on and we get closer to the actual general and all of that. So that being said, all of those disclaimers and background and information and introduction out of the way, uh, Richard and I, we think we should start maybe with the Green Party, since that's the one that people are most familiar with. Um, if you can go or like when, when you are done with this or even while you're listening to this, if you look at the show notes, we have links to all of the platforms that we discussed um, in the show notes so that you can actually see what we read um, and kind of, I don't want to say follow along, but at least have an idea of like where we're pulling this information from. And the first thing I want to say uh, just about the green platform is I actually did a little search just out of curiosity. And I said, do they mention socialism at any point in this platform? Or do they mention like a specific, um, I don't know, like specific left ideology and the only thing, I didn't see any references to socialism in the entire platform program, whatever. Um, but I did see, you know, they called themselves an eco-social party and they believe in an eco-social analysis and vision. Um, and I found myself wondering kind of what it means to not necessarily claim a specific ideology. It's Green Party is obviously left-leaning or left pretty solidly. Um, but I kept wondering to myself, what does it mean to kind of um, refrain from putting the Green Party in a specific ideological box um, as they try to contrast themselves to the Democratic Party? Yeah, um, I just wanted to kind of give, I guess, a quick little background of how I kind of came into what we were doing here today was I know uh, even in 2016 and definitely after I was kind of looking around to see, you know, as seeing Bernie as a compromise, uh, what, what are the alternative leftist structures in the United States that I could be a part of or be associated with or whatever and or where, how do they exist and so on and so forth. So I came across our, you know, uh, during this time uh, post uh, the convention and such came across screen party and then, uh, PSL and like you mentioned, uh, work uh, WWP and then uh, the CPUSA as well. And uh, looking at them, trying to understand, well, you know, why is this what like the first I'm really kind of hearing of them or digging deeper, both uh, looking at it from like kind of a 
public relations standpoint from their perspective then also from my perspective is what of why have i not sought this or seeked out or sought out this information more uh, previously and so that's one of the things that i was thinking going into this and then uh one of the other things that came to my mind is that we know we have the republican party and the democratic party and then everything else just gets lumped into a category of third party but there's a wide variety and difference and so i thought it was going to be important for me to kind of understand the distinctions or differences or why these groups feel uh, a need to be distinct from each other right. uh, uh, while being still uh, very marginalized, even on the left. And so, or at least on the U.S. political scale left. Right. And so I thought that's one of those are some of the things that I was looking at and like looking into when going like diving into this. Uh, and then. Uh, one of the things that stuck out to me, as you mentioned there uh, in the Green Party platform specifically, was the kind of uh, absence of a traditional ideological framework, more of a kind of creative one based around uh, ecology and uh, environment and kind of what came off to me without being, uh, I don't know, with uh, I shouldn't say with all due respect because that's something disrespectful comes, but basically uh, essentially just kind of what I envision the kind of uh, flower child, hippie, like white liberal kind of movement space. Like, mm -hmm. it, like it even though that, the party itself is not that, but yeah, no, exactly. But yeah, I felt like uh, that was kind of where the, the, at least as it was articulated, the ideological framing fit in my worldview and my understanding that's granted i'm not an in-depth uh, green party member i haven't uh, attended meetings and so like you said uh from my limited experience uh, that it doesn't actually kind of fit that it, it represents a lot of different people and uh, i think party platforms part of the what they are is besides being an organizing document they're also uh propaganda in the in the mm -hmm. sense of the word and that they're meant to reach out to a, a wider swath than just the immediate party members and so i take that into consideration as well but uh and the other thing is is the mentioning of so socialism i did find a, a couple mentions except uh essentially what they did what they were doing was uh, uh, uh distinguishing uh capitalism and what they called state socialism mm -hmm. and so and and they uh the in that framing they said that neither is uh conducive to an environmentally uh, friendly kind of policy goals and that there's a, a limited ability to or that they're not going to be capable of moving forward within those structures essentially one of the points comes under ecological uh, economics point two or uh one is was it uh, yeah point two community-based economics constitutes an alternative to both corporate capitalism and state socialism it values diversity and decentralization. Uh, I feel like that in many ways kind of is kind of buzzwordy and uh, it seems to essentially be trying to distinguish itself from, you know, doesn't want to get lumped into the, you know, Stalin, Lenin, uh, like all the, you know, the, the lumping together of uh, quote unquote authoritarian uh, right or uh, communist figures throughout history or whatever. Right. Essentially, this like that seems like they're, what they're trying to do is that they're saying that we're left to the Democratic Party, but and, and we're kind of sort of anti-capitalist, but not we're we're against corporate capitalism, and we're kind of socialist, and but we're not for state socialism. 
Right. And like so, they say, they ahead. say ecological decentralized socialism, which I think, I mean, it's when I hear decentralization and like non-state, like they say they're, they don't necessarily want state ownership of production. I mean, that just says to me, like, they're not communists, which fine, like whatever. It almost has a sort of anarchist um, or like, I guess, what do they say? Like libertarian socialist aspect to it to me um, when they yeah. say those sorts of things. And I don't mean that pejoratively, like I'm not yeah, no, no issue with anarchists or, so, you know, uh, libertarian socialists, but it seems to be sort of like a, um, they're saying that some of these models are outdated um, and that they're not necessarily the best means of addressing like current day problems that we have to have some sort of decentralized, like, um, what's the word? Like, it's almost, it reminds me of like the idea of like horizontalism, you know, in organizing. And so that seems to be their approach to ecological socialism. And I think it also, to me, it seems to draw on like some, in some areas, somewhat like indigenous forms or much, you know, like indigenous pre preformal state in the way we know it now. I'm not saying indigenous people didn't know states, but preformal state that we know it now and corporate state that seems to be focused on like this idea of working together, but not necessarily framing it under a specific ideology. So they use terms like, again, communalism, they use the word cooperative commonwealth. And then they say, but whatever the terminology, mm-hmm. <laughs> which like what? We believe it will help in labor exploitation, like all these other forms of exploitation. So it's like they don't want to put themselves in a box, which is fine. But it also, I think as a as a, as like a guide, it's not very clear what that will mean in practice. Like if the Green Party somehow rose to power in the United States, which I don't see happening for a very long time, what would their form of governance be if it's not clearly defined and laid out in their platform? Yeah, and exactly. That's that's kind of what I was pulling away as well. And uh, I think you bring up some interesting points that uh, enlighten me towards kind of different perspective with the anarchistic kind of aspect and then the horizontalism I think I see as well in the kind of terminology and i guess maybe it's just i don't know perhaps my biases that lead me towards to think it feels kind of like it feels hopey changey to me i guess is kind of like the the one of the phrases that comes to mind and that (laughs) it doesn't feel programmatic you know what Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. and so like i feel like that was lacking and i think like you said if they were to rise to power it it begs the question about like what does this mean uh it practically and i think uh that's not not a uh a problem unique to the green party i think it happens with a lot of both uh kind of uh nascent organizations as well as people beginning their journey in uh further leftward and so uh that's one of the things that i just kind of i don't remember exactly what reminded me but it's probably something on twitter but essentially it's just that you know you know, there's people that have been doing, been, have been hardcore to the left or communists for 40, 50 years already. And so that a lot of us that are, you know, on a journey leftward uh, one way or the other and, and have started somewhere in between then and now, like uh, that there's a lot to learn and that the experience of seeing what happens within these movements is something that's uh, different than kind of reading, I guess, about it and, and experiencing mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of value in uh listening and a lot of the people that you'd listen to probably aren't on twitter and so uh (laughs) for me 
and my just my tendency to stay inside i think it's one of the things that i personally need to work on and that i think then uh is probably i'm not alone in that and that we could be doing more to reach out and to hear more about uh, the experiences not necessarily uh as like you know uh, axiomatic or you know as in if this happens that happens kind of thing but just to help learn from some of the experiences of of various people that have been learning this stuff for a long time but uh when i look at something like this in the green party in this kind of program as they've laid it out uh and i compare it to some of the practices or the the learning that we've been doing and reading revolution and then uh the stuff that i've been just doing uh, on my own uh i feel like i see certain things lacking and so the distinguishment or them distinguishing themselves both i think mostly from socialism and then also from communism as well uh is reflected to me in what I see lacking in, in, okay. in this party platform compared to either PSL, which is uh, cumulatively shorter in length, but I think more comprehensive in uh, prescription and uh, diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just add to, I think your comments about the, like the journey left are really interesting and helpful when we're thinking about like what this platform looks like and how it reads to us now. Right. Because I think, I mean, I, and to full disclosure, I voted for Jill Stein and the green party in 2016 in the general election. I was um, in the, in the primary, I voted for Bernie Sanders. Um, and I wasn't like a Bernie or bust person necessarily, but I knew that I didn't want to vote for Clinton for a variety of reasons. Um, and my state ended up going, state I was living in at the time ended up going to Clinton anyway. Um, but obviously that didn't matter uh, in the grand scheme of things. But I think electoralism, that, man, it's fine. It's go ahead. Yeah. Like electoral college. Yay. Um, but one of the things that I remember when I was listening to Jill Stein and, and it wasn't so much about Jill Stein really, but I appreciated what she was saying. I think, as you mentioned, like the diagnosis, right? Like you're, you're accurately diagnosing the problem. And that was nice to hear. And I think it's something also that Bernie was doing um, that was nice to hear, obviously. And it's like, okay, someone's finally acknowledging these are the problems. Like they're actually saying, no, America is not great. Like we have all these issues that we're, we have both on a domestic and foreign um, plane and we have to discuss and like understand how to fix them. And I think that, you know, Again, like you mentioned before, too, Sanders is not necessarily he's already a, what we some of us would consider a compromise candidate. Um, but I think that when you have a, a quote unquote third party alternative and someone like Jill Stein or and or the Green Party and also Ajamu Baraka, who was her VP um, that year, it's interesting because you end up seeing so many different um, you go you go even beyond someone like Sanders. Right. I think the thing is, is though that even Sanders has a touch of this. Um, we have a problem. You can diagnose the problem, but when it comes time for programmatic implementation, there are sometimes dots missing, right? Um, and I think, I know that some people are not necessarily, um, I don't know, some people are sometimes reluctant to really say that. <laughs> I am not. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that, you know, in watching the debates, for example, uh, when the question came up about insurance, which is like every single freaking debate, they're like, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And, you know, he says taxes this way. Um, and Elizabeth Warren said like taxes, sort of, she didn't want to say taxes on the middle class. She talked about the 2% tax on the wealthy or 2 cent tax, whatever on the wealthy. And, um, and I know Sanders has also talked about 
uh, Wall Street speculation as being something that gets taxed. But again, the question is, how do you get Congress and the Senate to vote for that? Is this something that you're going to push as an executive order, like to make sure that it goes through, which is something that I brought up in an interview that I did for the Dig podcast, where I said, if these people on the left um, who are running for president want to implement these uh, policies, they're literally going to have to pull a Trump or arguably an Obama because he did a lot of executive orders too and push it through executive order and not be afraid of that. You know, um, the other alternative I hear a lot is, well, we're going to get a movement of the people. This is something that Sanders says, and it's something that now Warren is copying and saying uh, from Sanders. And it just feels like empty in some ways because it's sort of as nice as it sounds on a basic movement level. You're like, yeah, bring the people together and all this stuff. I think that it also expects a lot of the people and it makes the assumption that everyone's going to be willing to get in the street for better health care. And I don't know if that's the case for most Americans, even if it's possible for most Americans. Um, and I also am concerned about how much that will matter to Republican and right-leaning Democrats who literally are listening to their paymasters way more than us, whether we're in the streets or not, whether we're dying at their doorsteps or not, you know? Um, so I, I'm a little bit concerned as well, even among certain Democrats, about what the program is as it is implemented, right? Um, even in their, in their written platforms, there aren't always details there. And I think that that's something that like, I would like to be, I would like to see more um, articulate, more be like better articulated um, by the candidates, or at least, I don't know, like their, their supporters in the Senate or supporters in the House, you know, like there has to be, um, I think we're starting to see that with like some members of the squad, like Ilhan Omar, and also um, Pramila Jayapal, who's not officially part of the squad, although she probably should be. Um, but she, she, they both have like, been doing a really good job introducing legislation in the House and Senate, respectively, that sort of combine with Sanders's platform. And so I think that there's um, a degree of that happening, but it, I would like to see it more clearly articulated because I think sometimes when you hear that it's just going to be in the hands of the people, that can get kind of scary in terms of like, okay, well, how much does that matter anymore? Yeah, no, I think that's a, it's a good point. And to Sanders and, as you said, uh, Warren's coffee and credit, uh, they at least acknowledge the the need, whereas, you know, your, mm -hmm. your Klobuchar's or whoever else, <laughs> or, you know, is like, well, you know, my Republican friends in the Senate will need this in order to, it's like, well, obviously we're not even on the same page if you're trying to get Republicans to sign it. <laughs> right. Like, why don't you just run as a Republican, Amy? What are you doing? <laughs> right. I mean, it's uh, like, I it, it, it's fair to point out, I think, that uh, as a result of the supermajority of Democrats uh, in the Senate and the Obama presidency, the major accomplishment that they spent all the political capital on was uh, a health care plan, which is essentially a rehash of something that was presented and rejected uh, by Democrats of the Nixon era. It, or it was presented by Nixon administration and rejected by Democrats of the era as not being, you know, comprehensive enough, not being big enough, not being... Uh, so, like, it was too far right then, whereas now Nixon is considered uh, a, a flaming liberal at this point by much of the right, <laughs> at having, you know, done such atrocious things as started the EPA. So, yeah. like... <laughs> 
to put into context, like uh, uh, during 2016, a lot of people were concerned that uh, Hillary Clinton and just the primary in general was driving and the general election, regardless of who won, was going to drive the country to the right. And that that concept was rejected by a lot of liberal liberal folks and commentators as well. And essentially, I think we we see comprehensively over and over again how just how far right we've become, mm-hmm. uh, even uh, happening before then, and just like how it's being reframed as the left and the center. All like the center is to the right of the 1970s Republicans in everywhere except for some of the most superficial kind of social context uh, with. Uh, the most superficial recognitions of gay rights and uh, various race relations improvements um, that aren't matched uh, economically or in in the justice system. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like what I saw the other day, or maybe today I saw it, um, where they were saying, or Kamala Harris was saying like, you know, no one on the stage talked about or no, I'm sorry. It was Jason Johnson speaking about Kamala Harris and Castro saying that no one on the stage except for them talked about black issues. And people were like, so healthcare isn't a black issue and like jobs aren't a black issue. And, and, you know, war isn't a black, like all these things that they did talk about, although of course it was lacking and as always, but um, the things that they were able to go into with a tiny bit of depth are all black issues. Like every issue is a black issue because black people live, eat, breathe, die. You know, like we have all sorts of issues that we're facing as a community, but, and that's regardless of class. But if you look at like the disproportionate effects of this shit economy that we have on um, people of color and particularly black people of color, poor black people of color, you know, it just, it's an, it's ridiculous to say that the only thing we care about is, um, you know, maybe, if Donald Trump is kicked off Twitter because uh, he's racist or, you know, like, I don't know. I just think that the framing was really, as you said, it's based on these superficial ideas of what are issues that affect women or LGBTQ people or black people, et cetera. Um, I don't know. I, I, yeah. The other thing I just wanted to add uh, really quickly, and then I'll let you get back to what you're saying. I apologize if I interrupted a <laughs> thought. Um, but I think one of the things that also I thought was fascinating about Greens in 2016 and versus like when I read their platform, their platform seems so focused on ecology and like environmental stuff. And even the way that they talk about um, economics, uh, war, all of that stuff, like foreign policy, everything, they really talk about it through the lens of environment. Um, and you mentioned that at the beginning, but when you read through it, you really see it like, the language that they use is more about seeing it's it almost sounds like Marianne Williamson-esque a little bit, which goes into your characterization earlier, but it definitely, they're talking about like a holistic, like earth and all of these things. And and it kind of, it has that, that hippy dippy feeling, but I also think that it's interesting to reflect back on what was actually said in 2016 versus what's in the platform. Because in 2016, one of the things that the Green Party really did to differentiate itself during the general election was on foreign policy. And I know that that was probably a strategic um, choice because Hillary was the Democratic nominee. And obviously Hillary's foreign policy record is atrocious, um, even on the most objective levels. Um, And so I think that that's why they stuck, they sort of were staking out that area um but it's i don't think that their platform came through as much save discussions about the green new deal and maybe some of their healthcare stuff uh it didn't i didn't really come through in the same way that it does in this platform that really is like heavy on the environmental 
ecological language um, and framing everything through that through that um, kind of language. And I think that this is where, um, you know, like I, I think that this is also where we kind of see perhaps an, an example of ways that we can take one issue and let it be the framework for the entire, for an entire platform. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. if the Democrats wanted to say like, I don't know, uh, income inequality is there as their main framework. I think you could easily work in all issues under that, that guys, I mean, not guys, but that, that frame. And I, I see, um, for example, Andrew Yang trying to do that with UBI very unsuccessfully, I would argue, because like whenever he's asked about foreign policy, he's sort of like, well, you know, we would be making more money here in the United States if you weren't going to wars and everybody could get a thousand dollars a month. And you're like, oh, my God, like this is not this is not the only reason why you should care about foreign policy and issues that are affecting people around the world. But there are ways, I think, better ways that one could kind of use a broader kind of overarching idea and have it be the frame for the entire um, platform and program that the candidate puts out. Uh, that is an excellent point in that it, I, I agree that it does seem kind of demonstrative, demonstrative of that kind of uh, approach where uh, you let want like some a singular issue. And I could see the appeal in that, you know, ecologically, we're all on the same earth and, you know, we're stuck with it. And so like it's a uh, it's something to kind of unite around because what is also absent from uh the Green Party platform in any extensive sense that probably half a dozen mentions is class. Yeah. And so rather than uh, really addressing class, it kind of makes the distinction between state socialism and corporate capitalism. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, uh, communal, more kind of horizontal structuring and such. But uh, it doesn't really uh, address any sort of kind of class class consciousness and forms more around an ecological consciousness. Mm-hmm. And can leave the various classes intact, which is, uh, I think, what uh, those to the left of or further left will find problematic about the platform in general is that uh, it doesn't really address the class conflict in in the kind of ways, which I think is emblematic or is uh, also leads to why I think some of its prescriptions are lacking because uh, what it fails to diagnose the the role that class plays uh, as significant of a role as class plays, then it doesn't address it on the back end. And so uh, for me, that's just one thing uh, of thinking of uh, analyzing a platform or, you know, thinking about uh, co-signing or whatever, you know, endorsing a, a platform to a degree uh, is that's something that I'm, I would need or expect or want to see being worked on and those types of things. And so like uh, from the exposure that I had uh, to the Green Party in, up to prior to 2016 during 2016 and then since 2016 uh i find the platform itself lacking but one of the things where the green party does seem to somewhat excel uh, at least in some ways is in their organization for recognition and that uh as uh, wendy mentioned earlier some of the other left parties are kind of state specific and are only able to get any sort of ballot access or uh kind of uh traction within those boundaries and fail to make kind of a national movement, the green party, while the people have uh, disagreements about, you know, the extensiveness or the success of their electoral campaigning, uh, they are reasonably well known nationally 
as an alternative to the two major parties, which I think is uh, an important uh, distinction then like while the CPUSA is kind of uh, large and has a uh, veritable notoriety uh, on the left, same thing with WWP and some of the other leftist organizations, I think that they fail to uh, kind of extend outside of the left and on a national scale, whereas the Green Party uh, is reasonably well known both uh, nationally here and has some sort of international uh, kind of uh, representation, although the interconnection between various Green parties around the world is of, uh, I, I, I'm not personally deeply uh, aware of it, but from my uh, limited experience talking with uh, Green Party members from various countries, they vary quite a bit, as, as much as something like a liberal or a Democrat would vary in the uh, identified in the U.S. versus uh, somewhere in Europe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that you raise that about their sort of national status versus um, the local. I think if you look at countries like England and Canada, they definitely have far more representation there. I want to say Iceland, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I feel like has a, again, I could be wrong, but I think they have a pretty active Green Party. Um, Germany, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so it's interesting to think about, like, if there's any potential for the U.S. Green Party, although obviously our party structure here is really bifurcated into those two main parties and it's been a structure we've stuck with for a long time um, versus other countries that have long had either parliamentary systems or multiple parties and or both um, that sort of facilitate um, having a, an active sort of green party or alternative party um, to the, the main parties. Um, the other thing I just wanted to add is I appreciate your comments on the Green Party not uh, specifically addressing class in the same way as some of the other platforms that we read that we'll get to in a moment. But I do notice that they have they do have a section about income inequality and like jobs and um, income and wealth disparities uh, between the rich and the poor. So they do give some lip service to that. I mean, they definitely talk about it. I just I obviously agree with you that the way they talk about it is a bit different um, from the others because what's fascinating is that the Greens also call for a universal basic income. Um, and I don't think mm. that, I mean, this is, <laughs> so this is the framing that makes me like kind of sketch out. Right. So this is in the section about income inequality. They say as one of their tenants here, we call for a universal basic income, blah, blah, blah. This is the weird line. This would go to every adult, regardless of health, employment, or marital status, quote, in order to minimize government bureaucracy and intrusiveness into people's lives. So that, like, that that comes across as very, again, like, libertarian-y to me in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. Not just the UBI, but the framing there, right? So it's, it's less about, like, it should go to every adult because it's a universal program and, like, it should just be something that the government does because we have the money and we need to make sure that you know, we reduce income inequality, but it's also like, we don't want to, we don't want to like to, we don't want to maximize government bureaucracy and intrusiveness into people's lives. That's the part that's really strange to me. Like how would providing, um, like, let's say if they, if, I don't know if they means tested it or something, right. They already have our tax information. Okay. So it's not intrusive to say people who make under $50,000 a year would qualify for this additional help. You know what I mean? I don't, I also don't, I wouldn't ever call like a welfare program that's based on someone's income as intrusive into their lives. Now, 
as for the limitations, sure, right? Like if we say people are not getting mm-hmm. enough under welfare or like SNAP or whatever, um, they're not getting enough benefits or their benefits are being taken away at, at the slightest one cent over the limit. Yeah, that's a, that, that is, you know, arguably um, a problem, right? I mean, it's not arguably, it's pretty basically if you're like on the left, a problem. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the framing here makes it sound like government programs are intrusive which is a really strange framing to me um and kind of stands out as like huh like that's not good and then also um the other thing that they put is uh you know like they have some even in their discussion that follows this where they talk about jobs sort of a jobs guarantee and whatnot or like training and things like that they say that they want to bring together programs of private and public sectors to make them federal, state, and local priorities. And like, I don't know what that means. Like, I'm not sure what that kind of language means. Like, it says people who are unable to, this is quote, people who are unable to find decent work in the private sector should have options through publicly funded opportunities. Okay. Workforce development programs must aim at moving people out of poverty. That's fine. But like, what does that look like if you're also still going to keep a private sector functional? Um and then also going back to the other some other questions that have been raised about UBI as a whole, what does it mean then for income inequality if everybody gets UBI, including wealthy people? How does that reduce the gap in between them if it's just like you're getting a thousand dollars on top of what you already like you're, the state that you're already in? It just seems to like uh, maintain, you know what I mean? And especially because. It, the way they're talking about it, it almost sounds like they want to get rid of government programs. That makes me concerned. Like it says the amount, again, talking about UBI after this weird intrusiveness line, the amount should be sufficient so that everyone who is unemployed can afford basic food and shelter. State and local governments should supplement that amount from local revenues where the cost of living is high. So basically it's it sounds like they're trying to turn UBI into sort of like how we think about minimum wage. So like we're going to have a federal UBI and then we're going to rely on states to match those funds based on their their price of living. But like, you know, good and goddamn well, they're not going to do that, right? Like it took New York a long time to raise their minimum wage to what it is now. So like, I, I don't know. And it's still not enough, right? So that cons- that that language like really concerns me actually. I mean, I'm concerned, like, I don't know why I'm saying concerned. They're not going to win the presidency this year, but that kind of language is like really off-putting to me. Yeah. I mean, the, the more you point them out and thinking about it, it does feel kind of libertarian Trojan horsey, like in like that there is this kind of, uh, like i don't know the libertarian perspective kind of just concerns me in general but essentially it seems to me like a place for a libertarian that thinks that we shouldn't be able to destroy the environment essentially like if if you think that like you don't think that we can destroy the planet because we have to live here right. but you do believe in most of the other concepts of libertarianism then i think that you would find a lot of uh, traction here uh, and i could also see why that would appeal to various kind of threads of uh, anarchy or anarchism which according to the political test 10 is something i'm supposed to be leaning towards i guess but <laughs> I, I, i'm still learning so much about all of these structures as they've been thought out and presented and enacted and tried and failed or succeeded and so on and so forth and so like i consider myself learning and so i think that's one aspect of this whole process 
that I think is kind of also important for me is that uh, I didn't I'm like I wasn't born into disliking the U.S. government and, uh, you know, the police and so on and so forth. It's something I had to learn over time mm-hmm. as a result of essentially reality not matching what people were telling me and and then confronting those contradictions. And uh, politically, that meant, you know, it's like looking at solutions presented by Republicans, presented by uh, more centrist people, looking at solutions presented by Democrats or their diagnoses of the problem and realizing they're either incomplete, inaccurate or insufficient. And, and like recognizing that I don't think that that's the best that we can do. So then when I find into Frary and see things like, you know, that uh, the world is what we make it, you know, it's like these problems are ma- many of these problems are man-made. And so the solutions are also something that we'll create or can we can create. And so that's like those types of uh, conceptual framings and, and thinkings make a lot more sense to me. So then uh, it's not that I've come to this as some sort of either, you know, like, uh, you know, for personal gain or for any like in the sense of like monetary uh, sense, or I've come to the left as a result of, you know, uh, just random chance or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. that I've kind of been a systematic move of recognizing what I see as insufficiencies like has been or inconsistencies or uh, what I would kind of identify as incoherent presentations. Like, as you kind of point out uh, this disabling of the federal government and what they would call state socialism, but then dependent on that same type of state socialism, which would be a UBI in that kind of aspect. Like uh, it's, because uh, you know you need some sort of federal tax collector, and then the federal, then distributed by the federal level it, with some state level kind of. It, it seems like it's very half measured, mm-hmm. bandaid on a bullet wound, split the baby kind of uh, approaches on these things because they're trying to preserve capitalism and prevent uh, any sort of state uh, communism, as they as they put it. But essentially, uh, they're trying to take the best uh, aspects of those and keep them without. Uh, recognizing how those things are maintained within those systems. Right. And so, it, it, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was while you were talking, I was also looking at their um, their tax program, and it's very similar, actually, to Bernie Sanders's, but there's one part where I was like, oh, no, not again. So, again, like, red, red flag, red flag, you know? So they have um, a section here where they're talking about, like, you know, how they're going to do taxes, they're going to eliminate um, tax incentives for companies that send their jobs overseas. They want to restore the estate tax. Um, they want to raise taxes on millionaires and billionaires and all of that. Um, you know, they want to do uh, a transactional tax on uh, what are they called? Um, like Wall Street speculation. So I mean, it's very similar. Like if you read it, you would think this was part of Sanders's program or tax program. But then they have a line where they're like, oh, we also want to tax. Um, cigarettes and alcohol, which like is already the, the standard, but then they want to also tax soda pop and junk food, they say. And I was just like, we've already talked about how these sorts of taxes are basically, um, I don't want to say penalizing the poor, but because like, if you think about the fact that there's so many food deserts, right? Um, and if you're going into a poor neighborhood, it's very rare that you can find like a really, uh, I don't know, like average price grocery store that has an abundance of 
uh, fresh vegetables and fruits and healthy foods, that's within the price range of most of the residents, residents, unless the neighborhood ends up gentrifying, in which case that's different, you know, um, and that's not meant for the original residents by any means, of course. Um, and they usually cannot afford it. Right. Um, so what's interesting is like this idea of, I mean, it's something that Mayor Bloomberg proposed when he was mayor of New York and he's a billionaire. Um, but this idea that like, if we're going to put a tax on junk food, I wonder what that then looks like to people who live in food deserts and like pretty much all they have is access to in their immediate vicinity is junk food. Those, those, if you go to like bodegas and stuff, the food is already pretty expensive in some of those, at least the packaged foods. And so I'm wondering, you know, what does, why would the Green Party want to put a tax on those foods instead of like making the companies produce healthier food at a cheaper price? But again, I guess if they don't want to have any, they don't want state bureaucracy or like communism, then that's not going to happen, right? Because they're, they don't want to, they don't want to tell companies what to do, it seems. Um, in some aspects of their platform. Yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, not to dog out the Green Party, but you know, just looking at some aspects of their platform, it's like, huh? Like, it's surprising, I guess I should say, the standout. Yeah. Things. Well, and uh, to pick up on my previous point, in somewhat, I guess, not necessarily defense of the Green Party, but just uh, in a fair context, is that I do think that. Besides a platform, one of the like most important aspects that you know either Bernie or then just uh, all of the stuff theory that we've been reading and everything else uh, says is organization is critical and key. And so mm-hmm. when it comes to organ- organizing, uh, I think the Green Party, while perhaps their the what they do with their organizing isn't exactly where I would like to see it uh, pushed or whatever. The it does align with what they say that they're advocating for. It does align with their platform and. Uh, they are organized to a degree, like we said, that they have uh, national recognition to a degree mm-hmm. and uh, also international uh, uh, versions that have had various levels of success, again, with, uh, you know, various levels of connection to the United States Green Party. Mm-hmm. But uh, for as far as that goes, I think that that's one of the one of the strong points, whereas these further left organizations, be it PSO, WWP or CPUSA, uh, like that, while I think I identify much more strongly with the the platforms as they've been presented and various, uh, you know, articulations uh, by various representatives. Uh, I, I am, uh, I bemoan to recognize the, what I feel is a less substantial set of organization and, and action that's able to be taking place. While I also do identify more closely with the actions that they do take and uh, the things that they are focused on, I feel, are more aligned and targeting and better as far as prescriptive towards the solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, are not as uh, as widely organized or as uh, uh, diversely recognized across uh, political lines uh, within the United States, and especially when talking about within the confines of the United States and communist representation. And uh, I should say that it's not... Uh, certainly not entirely the fault of uh, various organizers uh, among communist leanings or socialist leanings in that our federal government has systematically exterminated, imprisoned, and marginalized these people at every turn. So it's not as if that the lack of organization or that the 
the the tenor of the Green Party can also partially be explained in by, you know, a desire to remain a national force rather than be systematically destroyed by the federal government, which yes. theory will give us, uh, you know, some enlightenment towards what we have to ask of ourselves and whether that's adequate or sufficient and so on and so forth. But uh, I think that those are kind of just contexts that I think is relevant or uh, I don't mean to defend or attack the Green Party, but just kind of hmm. put it as I describe it as I see it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And one of the things that I've heard a lot of people say um, in the past is, you know, the Green Party can't afford to be this radical because nobody takes them seriously or like they're never going to win. So they can say whatever they want. And like, you know, they have a little bit more flexibility. Um, and I think that can go for that kind of argument can technically go for all of these alternative parties or third parties, um, including the CPUSA and PSL and Workers World and things like that. Um, but I also think that they actually mean it um, and they're saying it not because just because they can, but because they mm -hmm. are trying to push the Democratic Party, at least to kind of move further. I mean, I know that they don't there are many members and leaders of these groups that do not have that kind of hope. And there's some that actually say that in their platform, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, I know that I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, they who are running for these positions through these parties, they obviously recognize that their party is not going to win. But the idea is a sort of issues campaign um, to, and again, we've seen that ha with success. I mean, again, the Green New Deal is a good example of this being incorporated by the Democrats to some degree, or at least certain the, the left, quote unquote, left wing part of the Democratic Party um, taking this idea on. But I think that there is a certain aspect of their approach, um, whether they're more national or more local, like some of the other smaller third parties, I still think that there's a, there's a degree of this that's like the magical, the mystical, the kind of seemingly unachievable. They're putting the idea out there anyway because they want people to at least have some sense of like a political imagination, which we very much lack in the United States. And the Democrats are included in that uh, criticism. The other thing I just wanted to say is that you know, obviously I'm not going to agree with everything in anyone's platform, right? Um, but I think that this, the Green Party, to, you know, to give them a compliment, it definitely, their platform, what I was able to read, definitely is a far cry from what we're looking at in our present and within the Democratic Party. You know, it's something that we should, I would love for the United States to aspire to this over what we have now, you know? Like, okay, there's a soda pop tax, which who says soda pop? Soda pop is like a regional thing, right? Like who says, <laughs> which part of the country says soda pop? I've never, like in New York, people don't say soda pop. You just say like drink or I hear like, I don't know, like soft drink. I'm trying to think, remember what people say for like, because in the South, we say Coke for everything. Like you want a Coke. I'm mm -hmm. sure everyone knows that uh, stereotype about us. But yeah, we generally say like Coke or drink. I don't know what I can't. I'm trying. I feel like soda pop is very like Midwestern, right? Isn't it? As a total aside comment question, but yeah, I feel like definitely with the soda too. Like the soda yeah, pop. Like the soda if you add the soda, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the soda pop. Um, I mean, maybe Amy Klobuchar wrote this platform. Um, <laughs> but save that specific. You know those those like nitpicky things that I find, and I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. It's definitely a far cry from what we have now, and much better. Like it's a vast improvement upon what we have. And I think, as as we both sort of mentioned at the beginning, the only major reservation is the fact that there seems to be no firm ideological grounding, at least politically speaking, and that 
they seem to reject pretty explicitly more firm ideological stances, or at least parties, party, you know, ideologies uh, that could help give the platform more structure in terms of implementation. So I, I agree with that. And kind of, I think that's like my grand takeaway, good, but do better. So like, I would give it like a B or B plus, um, <laughs> but you know, it's got to have more D it's like, you have the argument there, but I need the backup, right? Like I need the, how are you defending this argument? Um, how are you making this come to life in our current system? And what does that struggle look like? What does that implementation look like? I think is, yeah, definitely lacking. Um, I want to kind of transition to some, one of the other platforms, but was there anything else that you wanted to touch on? I mean, there's a lot, like I said, people can read it for themselves. It's when I printed it out, I mean, I didn't print out on paper, but the actual like total amount is like in the 200s, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of pages. So it's very, very long. Uh, but if you're, yeah, it's 204 pages long. Um, so it's a big old platform, but if you're interested in reading the whole thing and kind of like doing some highlights and, and pointing out things that um, you found problematic or that you missed, like feel free to do that and leave us a comment. Um, and we may be able to pick it up on a later episode if and when we talk about the Green Party again, which I have a feeling we're going to do. Um, but did you have any last minute or additional things you wanted to point out, add about this platform? Uh, there was one thing. Uh, I think it was uh, it was about kind of uh, the organizational aspect or the pragmatic, like strictly from a pragmatic perspective. I think that one strength I can see uh, in the Green Party platform is from my observations and from my perspective, I see that a lot of people uh, that identify as Democrats also don't have any kind of ideological uh, center-ish kind of prescriptive uh, neb, like, I don't know, like core. It's yeah. uh, that, that their politics is very positional, like in that they want to find themselves somewhere near the center and towards the left. And so I could see a Green Party platform easily uh, being adopted by somebody uh, that has uh, that kind of political uh, engagement in that it would allow them to position themselves uh, between the more radical communists or socialist folks and then the more radical right-wing nationalists and so on and so forth in a more kind of true center that would actually, that would be a better center than the one that is currently, you know, described in U S politics in the center, which is essentially uh, a, a nationalist right-wing uh, hawkish and so on and so forth. And so uh, I think, if if we were going to have a new center, the Green Party would fill that uh, much better than the de the Democratic Center does at the moment, and uh, I think this program uh, kind of fills that role well. Uh, theory got you know instructs me about you know this kind of uh, manipulative kind of uh, political approach and its weaknesses, so I'm hesitant to be uh, to speak too positively of it. But from a pragmatic perspective, and as I uh, having been more of a uh, pragmatic pol political mind previously, previously, I can see how strategically that it makes sense to kind of have this style of platform and uh, how this could be uh, more easily adopted uh, than a, like a radical anti-capitalist platform by uh, folks that can that have a more positional political uh, ideology rather than one that's uh, based in theory. 
so that was kind of the my cap on that uh i know we've already kind of been on for a while so i don't know how much we're going to go into the uh our other two platforms at the moment but uh the psl one was probably the the shorter one and what i did notice that stuck out right away kind of uh in that one in particular is although it's shorter it does mention uh, both uh, native and black uh, communities more than the entire 200 pages of the Green Party. And so uh, I think one of the aspects, particularly in the U.S. of any leftist movement that is kind of uh, you not entirely unique, but uh, has some specific uh, circumstances in the U.S. is the role that race and uh, that race and the intersections of race and class and so forth interact and how that has to kind of be considered in any sort of leftist movement in that the goal of the United States isn't to create uh, socialism for its white residents at the expense of its uh, non-white residents or whatever. And uh, people throughout the rest of the world, it's to use the current United States position as a powerful ally towards socialist liberation. And so I think that, that that's kind of an important distinction that I did notice that uh, between the PSL and the CPUSA, uh, while they do have uh, sections listed out for individual uh, segments and so forth, uh, I'm not a- as like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I don't like African-Americans as a term generally, but like, that's just me personally. And I know that there's uh, throughout the diaspora movement, there's a variety of different perspectives on that. And I haven't personally delved into them too much. So I don't know if that's something uh that you can speak towards uh, a bit better than I can, but uh, that's, that just kind of is off-putting to me, but it just feels like when I was reading the, the PSL, it felt more like there was a lot more contributions from people of color, whereas the CPUSA felt like it was written much more by a group of, uh, of white uh, communist leftists. And so I'll leave, let you comment. Yeah. I don't know. I think on, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, there's a section on the CPS. CPUSA website that talks about how they put together the platform. I feel like I saw something like that in passing. And I know there's something similar on the Green Party website. Um, but I would say for both PSL and CPUSA, there is at least a blurb and there are discussions interwoven about racism and how racism holds back the prospect of class solidarity and how racism is a tool of the powerful um, to divide all these groups that are oppressed. But one thing that I think is interesting about the CPUSA um, commentary on race, this question about African-American aside, although I think it's interesting, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, that mm. used, um, intentional Personal thing, but go ahead. Yeah, no, but I think it's an important thing to interject here, which I'll, again, I'll kind of touch on in a second. But what's good about the CPS, CPUSA section on or sections on race and racism and specifically racism, I should say, is that they talk about the fact that like, not only is it a weapon, not only is racism a, what they call a potent weapon to divide working people, but what's interesting is that they're also very keen to point out that racist violence, they say, quote, racist violence and the poison of racist ideas victimize all people of color, no matter to which economic class they belong. Um, And they talk about like voter suppression, racism from the police, from the quote unquote criminal justice system. Um, And then they also talk about the fact that like, even if you are poor, (laughs) 
if you're of color, you're experiencing additional things that add to your oppression because of racism, right? Which is like, mm -hmm. again, to me, super obvious point to a lot of people is a super obvious point, but it's something that's that sadly has come up again as like this contested idea when they're like there's stat after stat after stat proving this. It's kind of like, I feel like I'm dealing with flat earthers. I always say this, but people who deny the impact of racism on economic inequality and whatnot are, are just like literally ignoring reality. Um, so I appreciate that they both mentioned this. this is, what I was reading from was specifically from the CPUSA document. Um, PSL also goes into quite a bit um, the aspect of racism and other forms of discrimination and violence that are based on other identities um, and how that how they hold back um, the not only the unification of groups that are affected by these things, but also they hold back what they consider the long-term goal of a socialist, quote-unquote, socialist transformation of the society and the destruction of capitalism, right? Um, but what I think is fascinating about your comment on Af the use of African-American. So obviously here in the U.S., like that term is exclusive to the U.S. Um, and that comes from the fact that like there was a whole movement around you know, going from Negro being a term to colored to black being a sort of political term. And then around the 80s, I want to say late 70s, early 80s, you see movements from people like Jesse Jackson, Rainbow Coalition, um, some people who are, are Afrocentrics and whatnot, um, who decide to call themselves African-Americans as a sort of nod to our African heritage, um, while at the same time recognizing our USian, like our Americanness, right? Um, but at the same time, also at that point, you don't see as many, um, you don't see as much of a discussion that you do now coming from immigrants who are from the Caribbean, from African countries, from Latin America, really contesting this idea of what Blackness is, right? And like kind of reintroducing to us the more diasporic idea of Blackness, Um you see that now a lot, like that's all f off a discussion that is fraught with all sorts of problems in terms of the American end because of certain movements that will not be named in this podcast, uh, but that are very nativist and xenophobic and that are trying to claim a kind of Americanness that is exclusive to African-Americans and that to which no one else has any claims, but also to kind of limit the understanding of blackness to be a very American thing, which I don't agree with. Um, and it's just historically inaccurate, but I say all of that because I think it's, it may not have been an intentional choice on the well, the side of the CPUSA, but because the communist party of the United States is a U.S. based party, obviously all of these are, but you get what I'm saying. It's U.S. based party. Um, I think they are perhaps in making that choice, not only are they trying to be politically correct, but they're also trying to discuss the fact that they're speaking specifically to Black Americans who were born and raised here, who are descendants of, you know, slaves that were brought to these shores, to the United States, um, who have inherited things like Jim Crow and um, segregation and whatnot. So I think that there is, and especially I think also because of the CPUSA's history, by the way, the work of Black communists, to be sure, uh, but their history in terms of involvement in the civil rights movement, the anti-lynching movement, um, you know, helping with the Scottsboro Boys case, et cetera, which is something that if you haven't gotten caught up to all the episodes, definitely go back if you're interested in this idea and the idea of, you know, early Black communist organizing, go back and listen to my discussion that I have with Professor Cherise Burden-Stelly, because she talks all about this. Um, but there are 
in the 20s and 30s um, and up to around the 40s before the 50s kind of put the kibosh on a lot of black communist movements because of HUAC and um, you know all of these uh, McCarthyist movements and whatnot, you really see a lot of black communists engaging these questions of race and class um, in very active ways. And sometimes with the you know pushback from the communist party so while the communist party now likes to take credit for those things a lot of the mm-hmm. people who got that stuff off the ground were black communists that they initially were not too welcoming of in terms of their ideas about um anti-racist work so it's it's fascinating to kind of interject with that history but i think that that might be why um again i'm reading a lot into this right so that could be why they made that choice to specifically talk about african americans um but i think also just to be for like somewhat forgiving african americans is like the catch all for black even if it doesn't necessarily just refer to african americans right so it could refer refer to afro latinos it could refer to afro caribbeans african immigrants i don't think that they were being that intentional in their choice of using that word um but it's certainly one that i think you know, it's like this the politically correct one, but that also just so happens to point out the Americanness of Black people, African Americans in this in the United States. Um, and to be fair, it also it it is used also in the the PSL as well. Uh, yeah. they've they switch between them, so it feels as though you know this is probably something that's been amended over time, right. and uh, various groups have contributed. And at different times, it was different no- nomenclature that was more uh, ubiquitous or uh, considered uh, the best choice. So I think that there's an aspect of that as well. And I think also like in the case of PSL, I mean, PSL is definitely more internationalist than CPUSA is. Um, And I think that sometimes, you know, if we're looking at like, for example, when we see section, there's a section in the CPS, I'm sorry, the PSL platform that talks about if they start this section within the United States, so they're specifically talking about the United States, They say this includes the right of self-determination for African-American, Native, Puerto Rican, and other Latino national minorities, the Hawaiian nation, Asian, Asian, Pacific Islander, Arab, and other oppressed peoples that have experienced oppression as a whole people under capitalism. I think, and then also they have a section where they talk about reparations for African-Americans. I think sometimes they are signaling specifically American Black people, like Native-born descendants of blah, 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 native born black people um, in the US. But at the same time, I, like, I think, I think, let me, how do I phrase this? I think in the PSL document, they are being intentional about their use of African-American. Mm-hmm. I think in the CPUSA, it's sort of just like politically correct. But when you see in the PSL and when they use black versus when they use African-American, they seem to be different. So for example, when they talk about um, schooling in the United States and access to higher education and things like that. They mentioned that um, there have been historic, quote, historic disparities in educational quality and opportunities in Black, Latino, Asian, and Native communities. And in that case, they're just talking about not so much ethnicity, but race, right? Um, Black, Latino, Asian, Native American, or like Native, Indigenous in this case. Whereas they, I think in the other section, they're talking about sometimes specific ethnic groups that have specific claims to specific aspects of, you know, like U.S. history, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's what I got from from their switching back and forth. But it could also be, as you already said, a matter of who's editing when and why and like, you know, so I think because 
if they're talking about self-determination in the United States, it makes sense to say African-Americans, right? Because like we Mm -hmm. have, if you're going to look at, you know, geographic space, where were you a slave? Where were you, where were your ancestors enslaved? What kind of claims do you have actual right, quote unquote, right to? Then yeah, like I'm not going to say like I have a right to claim land in Brazil because I'm not from there, right? And my ancestors aren't necessarily from mm-hmm. there. So I think that that may be why they're using, um, they're fluctuating going back and forth between these different terms. Um, but it's a good point. It's something that I didn't notice um, at all when I was reading, but that's, a, I think, something important to point out. And maybe, something considering some of these movements that won't be named uh, worth (laughs) these groups kind of looking at and being more specific about if they really mean just Americans of African descent or if they mean, you know, all black people. Um, I don't know. It's a good, I think it's a good observation though, for sure. Um, Yeah. But that's, I think beyond that, I really, I, I, I don't mean to conflate the two, uh, groups. But I do think it's important that both PSL and CPUSA, and I think telling of their like kind of um, ideological backgrounds as well and historical backgrounds, that they mention race very explicitly, like they have sections on it. Um, And the Green Party, which one of the things that like kind of made me upset after the 2016 election is the direction that the Green Party started to go in, insofar as they started doing events podcasts and whatnot with people who are definitely on the far right um, or who have a history of being on the far right. And it made me kind of do a double take. Um, And I think they were engaging in some practices that were like, well, we all agree on this one issue. And so we can put aside our ideological differences. But like, Mm. that's not something that you can necessarily put aside if the person you're like uniting with is a fascist or like call, you know what I mean? Like there's kind of a, there's a very thin line between working with someone who's ideologically different from you versus like bringing them into your movement. And I think potentially alienating and uh, harming even uh, certain members of your community and your party. So I, I appreciate, although I know PSL has had some, you know, had some accusations leveled at them about this as well. Um, having some people involved, although not formally, but like showing up at, at rallies and stuff that are technically alt-right types and what that means. But I think in terms of all of the party's intentions and particularly PSL's intentions, they're not interested in those kinds of collaborations in the same way that Green Party seems to have been um, inviting, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that there's a desire or an appeal to try to uh, attract folks that have a there. The the rage is is there, you know, the anger at the system is there or the anger is there, but it's directed at the wrong targets and that okay. it's directed at the individual uh, individuals and the you know the victims of these systemic injustices rather than the systems that uh have set, ha, have have kind of pushed them too close for comfort to those types of injustices because they don't uh, they're not close high enough on the class scale to to find themselves uh, escaping some of those more uh, uh, than the the negative consequences of being a marginalized person in society. And so uh, I think one of the ways we see that and is manifested politically and in a lot of ways is uh, with uh, in the United States with the kind of far right 
xenophobic movement and its uh, history repeating itself and that it's ca- the United States has seen several iterations of this that mm-hmm. when there's uh when there's economic uh injustice at the lower end of the scale and uh more uh, marginalized white folks uh for one reason or another, find themselves in there. They rather than turn towards the systemic injustices that are perpetuating uh, that circumstance, they turn towards wh- who they see as the benefactors of that injustice, which are the uh, minorities and marginalized folks that have achieved some marginal victory towards dignity and you know towards their humanity. And so, like that, they're able to you know not be caged for crossing a border is why this corporation fired me when it's not that this corporation saw a more profitable opportunity in exploiting somebody who was more vulnerable than you. Right. Like framing matters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so like, I see the appeal to, to want to, to rather than some, to appeal to that person rather than somebody who may also agree with you that racism is bad, but can't identify that there's anything to be angry about. And so, like, uh, I think that those are kind of two different crowds that uh, that I I see third parties generally trying to expand into. And I think uh, partially a lack of ideological theory basis from the Green Party may lend itself to be more vulnerable to uh, appealing, uh, not necessarily just appealing to far right, but uh, sort of a uh, coordination and... uh, and assistance of each other in ways that are actually net negatives towards any sort of, uh, you know, socialist liberation goals. And so I think that because they aren't a socialist organization, they aren't, uh, you know, led by theory. That's, that's a vulnerability that the, while, like you mentioned, PSL or other leftist groups may uh, be seen at similar types of events that there's a kind of an expectation or there should be at least of while we may have a common goal there's certain expectations that have to be met before we can see ourselves in common concert towards working towards that goal so, right it's like, like something just we've heard before or, or, with ahead. hampton sorry no it's, just, it's like something we've heard with hampton that people keep screwing up about his legacy uh that he mm-hmm. was willing to work with anybody and it's like no he had there were some terms you know like before he would work with people that they had to adhere to so um yeah but go ahead i just think it's you know like I keep oh, it's this. critical. And I think it's something that we're seeing in what is a, a, a rebirthing, I believe, in many ways of a, a genuine leftist movement in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not that we are essentially like in some ways we are building off on the on the backs and off the work of all of those folks that have come before us. But in many ways, we're also creating something anew in that that what they had built had been systematically dismantled. Right. And and destroyed at every tier that it could be, and, and dispersed where it couldn't. And so, uh, while some of that new formulation is inherently going to be a a reintegration of these ideas and a and a kind of a modernization and adaptation towards both the current circumstances and the lessons learned from those times, it's also something new. And, and in this phase, I think, uh, as to build off the point raised at the top of this uh, podcast, is that uh, there's a lot of wisdom in those that survived that diaspora, both in why they made the choices they made, how they survived, and, and what 
was the impotence for or the 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 cause of the destruction and like how they see that manifesting today and so uh it's not to say that it's all going to be uh you know uh, taken as absolute truth but it should be something integrated into any sort of new formulation of the leftist movement in the United States today. And so to that point, I think uh, the stressing of organization within uh, both of these programs, I think is also important and uh, just in general towards the goals. And I think that that's probably both where, like I said, functionally and, and results wise, they seem to be somewhat lacking, but not for a lack necessarily of uh, containing the, the ideas, but uh, perhaps the circumstances of the United States, it's not a suppression as we see in a lot of other, you know, countries where a nascent left is is growing and it's a much more brutal and confrontational attack, although the, there is plenty of that, uh, of, you know, including, you know, Ferguson protesters mysteriously ending up dead and so on and so forth. It's, uh, it's I, I would say it's more of a war of attrition the strategy of attrition that's being taken place in that uh, rather than, you know, circle up and burn down black neighborhoods like they might've done a hundred years ago. Uh, they're trying to, you know, use gentrification and a general capitalist malaise and to wear down opposition. And uh, I think confronting that is going to take a, as a, a very, deliberate organizational structure that is uh, not hierarchical, but is effective. And I think that's part of, I think what's needing, what, 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 what is being worked on and it is also conflicts with that as that builds, it, it tracks itself towards things like the black identity extremist type tags and so on and so forth mm-hmm. to be targeted for the same type of repression that we saw previously. Right. Um, and I don't know what the solution is to that oppression. Like it's a matter of, cause I think at this point, it's not only a matter of changing government structure, but also like corporate structure, social, like societal structures. So many things that where this, this sort of um, process is like embedded. So this idea of gentrification, I mean, part of it is government in terms of like where they ease up on taxation, how they allot the land, how they divide the voting blocks, all that stuff. Like they're not voting blocks, but the, um, when they do gerrymandering, you know, which people are actually given representation when and when not. Um, and also again, like tax, tax relief, um, from some, for some businesses to start in certain neighborhoods. Um, but, and like land allotment um, and all that stuff. And even, even like in like uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, like land taxes, taxes on your home and things like the income tax and whatnot, how that's, how that plays out, um, which areas of the country have really, really, really high taxes on homes um, and why that is obviously to keep certain people out. Um, but it's, and redlining, I'm <laughs> just thinking of like so many examples, right, that are governmental, but at the same time, there are things that are very explicitly corporate, um, like the sort of superficial raising of prices on apartments um, and homes in certain areas, because the area is quote unquote up and coming, how a lot of this is a matter of branding. Um, and, and also just like desperation, economic desperation of previous residents. And some would say if they're, if they don't have like a sort of structural analysis, well, they made the choice to move out. You know, they made the choice to take the $60,000 for their house. That's probably worth a million now to leave the neighborhood and to move down South or wherever they went. Um, But at the end of the day, 
you know, if we're looking at like sort of choice not happening in a vacuum and thinking about these things structurally, then yeah, it's because they're already economically desperate and how that also is intentional, right? Um, and I think something that you already kind of pointed out, but I don't, I don't know how to, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to end, I don't want to say like, I don't know how to fix it and therefore, oh, well, you know. <laughs> um, but I, again, this is where I'm sort of frustrated with all of the platforms and that they don't offer answers. They really, I think, diagnose the problems well, but I'm still sometimes coming, like even with PSL and CPUSA, I'm coming away from it seeing like, yeah, saying, yeah, that's the problem we face. These are the issues we have. Now, how do you fix it in a very tangible way? And I think beyond, like you have to, you can't just say, well, class struggle, because that's not going to cut it. Like what does even class struggle look like in a place like the United States where, and especially now we don't have like an agrarian economy anymore. It's not as like cut and dry, I think, as in some older examples of class struggle that worked out, um, even if only temporarily. But what I think just kind of getting back to the platform specifically is one, I mean, again, there are lots of commonalities between the CPUSA and the PSL only because they're both communist groups, right? I mean, PSL is socialist, but it is, it is a communist, um, you know, if we're going to put it in like an ideological category, it's communist as well. Um, like CPUSA, it's definitely to the left of DSA, Green Party, Democratic Party, obviously. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting and perhaps worth like later discussion, um, if and when we ever have someone from one of these parties on the show, is to talk about um, their sense of internationalism, because as I mentioned before, I know PSL definitely has a lot of that. CPUSA does as well, so not to undercut what they're doing. Um, but I wonder, you know, what does it, it just to me, it has always felt like PSL has a much more internationally facing um, platform and approach to things. And maybe that's just the work of Gloria Lariva, who's been their president, who was their presidential candidate in 2016, and who has already announced um, as their presidential candidate for this year, along um, with uh, Native American activists uh, by the name of uh, Leonard Peltier. And so I think, and he's, he's, his background in history is pretty well known already, but um, I think it's something worth looking up to understand sort of where he fits in this. Uh, but I think that, I don't know, I always just got the sense that they, PSL in this case, did a little more in terms of foreign policy. And it seemed to be one of their major points because Lariva often talks about our relationship with um, Syria and North Korea, Russia, and what that sort of means in the present. Um, whereas the CPUSA platform to me felt a little bit outdated correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was reading mm -hmm. it, I felt like it was written in like the late nineties or something. Maybe it was, I didn't see the date on the platform. Um, but something about it felt a little older. Yeah. So this was written. Okay. It was drafted and approved as final text in 2005. So I definitely mm -hmm. felt that because it did feel a little bit behind um, in a lot of ways, not so much that these things no longer apply, but just that it wasn't bringing up very many current, issues like it was their structural issues that still exist but not i think to the same degree that psl's felt more contemporary more present to me um and some of the issues that it brought up and not only in their platform but in their just like their announcement and their their basic um information about the party and all of that stuff um it could also be because psl is a much newer party as well so that plays into it um but yeah i wonder 
I don't know. And like I said, I really would like to dedicate more time to both of these platforms in the future mm -hmm. um, because I think there's a lot more in here that we could go into and talk about considering what we do on the show. Um, but I just, I wonder what does a workers movement, a class struggle, like using some of their language, what does it look like in action? And that's the part that I missed. And I don't expect them to come right out and say, this is how we're going to overthrow capitalism. Step one, you know, <laughs> they're going to do that. But it just, it still felt, it felt to me like that all sounds nice, but what does that look like besides marching and making flyers? Which yeah. Is what they both do a lot of, you know? Yeah, I know. I definitely feel, felt that as well. And uh, also to that point, I also get a bit of, well, you know, <laughs> you don't exactly want to tell him what's coming. Right. <laughs> like if you, And so that's one of the things that I try to keep in my mind as well, is that while uh, public facingly uh, various groups or organizations may seem not as organized as they could be behind the scenes in a more uh, private or safe environment where they're capable of uh, organizing in ways where they don't become recognizable immediately as threats. But again, I think theory leads us to, to, to a point where uh, these confrontations are going to happen and sacrifices are made and, and we, we do our best, you know, it's like, uh, is what is living under capitalism anyway. And then I guess one of the things that, to the points and I guess towards the point of a conclusion, which I, I feel we're, we're reaching is I did feel that what distinguished both CPUSA and the PSO platform from the green party, from the democratic party in general uh, is uh, rather succinctly put in both their conclusions uh, to various degrees. I'll just put them, I'll just say them both uh, in the, the CPUSA, they say the problems of exploitation, oppression, and survival facing humankind can only be solved ultimately by the elimination of the exploitive system of capitalism. And it's like, and it goes on to say, our survival depends on a transformation to socialism. And in the PSL, they say there are only two choices for humanity today in increasingly destructive capitalism or socialism. And it, to me, that is the over-encompassing question that if I were going to try to find something uh, like uh, aside from class itself uh, to kind of organize, if I was going to structure an ideological framework like the Green Party did around uh, a singular kind of framework, a singular idea uh, uh, framework, it would be that or we have two choices to, as, to survive as a species. Uh, and it's either die uh in maintaining capitalism or to survive and move towards socialism that that is the question and is to me in a lot of ways and uh some may find it somewhat hyperbolic is that it, we're already engaged in class warfare the other side is organized and they're winning and and they're beating us down and the only chance we have is to organize because they're already planning for essentially a generally uninhabitable planet like a lot of them are in denial but many of them are already planning and making uh, accommodations for vast swaths of the planet to be uninhabitable and to one degree or another are making plans for what what's going to happen to those billions of people that are displaced or, uh, you know, uh, affected. And so if we don't organize, they are going to win. 
<laughs> they, like whether, whether their victory is pyrrhic or it actually manifests into something that is worth it for them is is another discussion but it, they're fighting they're winning our choice isn't you know it like the democratic party of uh slowing them down isn't a, isn't a viable solution to survival okay. so like even though uh, I find, uh, like as what he points out, that the these other alternatives may be lacking in some of the prescriptive solutions towards the actual pragmatic and implementational aspect, uh, the the framing of what that implementation needs to look like is categorically and comprehensively uh, more functional and better than what exists within our two party system, which is radical right-wing nationalists and the people that want to slow them down. That, that is not a, a, a framework or a, a context that can lead to survival. <laughs> like it can't, it is like not for the masses anyway. It's like perhaps for the, the one top one tenth of a percent and the 1% to support them. And then the robot fleet that is managed by Yang. I don't know, but like, <laughs> uh, the, the, like, for the rest of humanity, there isn't a solution that leads to survival within the two-party system and under capitalism. And I think that that is the most important thing to get the people that don't agree with you politically to recognize. And I think it's one of the most undeniable aspects of this whole thing. And, and one of the things to relate it a bit back to the Democratic uh, Party debate that uh, distinguishes, although not as much as I would like, Warren from Sanders and that uh warren is an avowed capitalist she is going to save capitalism capitalism will not die as long as she has like it not without her dying first and so mm -hmm. like whereas uh, bernie may not be as rabid of an anti-capitalist as i might like but uh under the auspices of uh, electoralism and uh democratic socialism social democrats whatever uh i i recognize that position as as what it is and I do still find it as an important distinction and that uh, Bernie might not be out to kill capitalism, but he's not opposed to letting it die, which I think is an important distinction between him and Warren, which makes it to where they're not, uh, even if a lot of their policy may seem so or sound so, they're not interchangeable in my view. Right. I mean, it's one of the things, too, that I, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is straight out of the debate. Um, I think it is PSL's platform. Let me see if I can find it. Um, I hold on one sec. I have it. I thought I had it highlighted. Yes, here we go. So it's like the first page for about the party of socialism and liberation. Did you already read this and I missed it somehow? You didn't read this, I, did you? I don't think so. Okay. So there's a line here that says, quote, equally unrealistic. Or Okay, so let me just start from the beginning. The idea, quote, the idea that the capitalist's grip on society and their increasingly repressive state can be abolished through any means other than a revolutionary overturn is an illusion. Equally unrealistic are un our reformist hopes for a, quote, kindler, gentler capitalism or solutions based on economic decentralization on small group autonomy. And what made me think immediately <laughs> of the part uh, from the debates where Warren says she believes in accountable capitalism. And it's like, no, honey, that doesn't exist. Like, it can't exist. Capitalism is, like, completely unfettered. You can't hold it down because it relies on, like, the market of laissez-faire, you know, like, economics where you just – the market is free and it does whatever it wants, you know? And I think that 
it's I can understand if you're running for government office in the United States that because we have this like anti-communist crap going on here and have for a very long time, and especially considering that many some of the candidates are, you know, from the generation where they literally lived through McCarthyism, you know, I can get why they have this in the back of their heads all the time. And I think they're trying to appeal to older voters who also have this in the back of their head most like since they were babies, you know. Um, but the reality is that like there is no way to hold capitalism accountable because then it's no longer capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like it's just frustrating that we can't even it, it it's frustrating that we can't even envision another system and we can't envision ending the system that we have. I mean, it even even in the discussion about like Medicare for all, everyone's like, oh, well, you're gonna get rid of their regular insurance that they have now. And I'm like, how many people do y'all know other than the people on this stage who are all in freaking government office or the private sector and make plenty of money and that have decent insurance beyond those few people that you clearly have not talked to, you know, like <laughs> you haven't gone and talked to anyone else, I guess. Who loves their insurance? I mean, does anyone love their insurance? Like, it's an absurd idea. And so the point is, like, I've the only time I ever liked, quote unquote, I would say loved even my insurance was when my husband worked for a company that made their insurance. It was a foreign company and they made their insurance plan in the U.S. match that of which they would have received in their foreign country through socialist, you know, medicine. Like it is freaking <laughs> absurd and everything was covered. I had surgery. I would, you know, every time I was sick, I'd go to the doctor. All of my medication was covered. I didn't have any co-pays, nothing. It was literally like if I lived in that country and I had my healthcare taken care of because their government was smart enough to put in a system that actually gives a shit about their population instead of wanting them to die. And I think here what we have is a complete and utter reluctance to do anything about the problems that we have. We just want to keep things as they are even if it means half the population like starving to death, dying from God knows what issue, illness, because they can't go to the doctor, they don't have time, they can't afford it, et cetera, et cetera. They're on the phone for six hours a week with their insurance company, like I was this week. You know, like there are these things that just, it's like they're all framed as impossibilities, but I'm like, a lot of other people are doing it. And I think this idea that we're stuck with capitalism, capitalism alone, and then we just have to put a bow on a pile of shit is not helpful. You know what I mean? Like we have to mm-hmm. think beyond this. And I think that's what's so exciting when you read these other platforms, because despite any flaws that they may have that we have touched on and that we'll go into again at some point, I think that it gives you hope, right? And I know you said that the you absolutely <laughs> said that the Green Party one is a little hopey changey, but all of them I think are hopey changey, but I think in a way that like gives you it's like okay there are other people who think like this i'm not the only one who recognizes that there's a problem i'm not the only one that recognizes that there must be some sort of solution around the bend if we're willing to fight for it and i think that that is something that these parties and their platforms and their activism can at least help us understand and give us a sense of hope as realistic and pragmatic as some of their approaches are um, and maybe not pragmatic, but like th- it's like dark. You know what I mean? When you read it, you're like, yeah, we have a lot of problems to fix. But there's also still a sense of like, but it can be overcome, you know? And mm-hmm. I think with Democrats, unfortunately, the standard issue Democrat, not not the ones in the left wing of the Democratic Party, but the standard issue Democrat just poops on all that hope. They're like, there's no point in thinking beyond what we have now. There's no point in getting better. There's no point in 
fixing anything because nothing is wrong. What's wrong with you is what they ask. You know, why aren't you loving your insurance? Why aren't you loving all these wars? You know, why don't you like where you live? It's, why aren't I bet, you happy I bet that Russia made taxed? you do it. Russia made you do it, didn't they? It was Russia. Yeah, <laughs> like someone, some foreign, foreign country made you upset. And the reality is like, maybe if I moved to that foreign country, I would actually have some healthcare that makes sense. You know, I may not, I may not be able to tweet as much. Uh, I'm just, I'm making like kind of a joke. Obviously I don't know what, I'm not saying that in Russia you can't tweet, but I'm saying in general in these countries where they frame the idea as like, Oh, this country is the bad guy and they don't. So yeah, I mean, the main thing is just like, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay the, the importance, like the extreme significance of, um, sort of civil liberties and needs based on speech and things like that. And I'm also not saying obviously that like these other countries don't have those things, but I'm just saying the fact of the matter is in the US we're given this like weird choice that's not really a choice where they're like, well, at least you have democracy. So what are you complaining about? And it's like, but our basic needs aren't being met. You know, like you don't know if you can go see a doctor when you're literally dying and to be able to afford that but you can like tweet whatever you want. And what good is like, what good is having quote unquote freedom of speech, which by the way is also not secure in this country because we know what happens to, I don't know, poor black people or Muslims or people, other people of color who are immigrants, fill in the blank, who use their freedom of speech rights and then they're immediately violated. Um, you know, we know that that's not even secure. So what is it that, that we're supposedly being not allowed to have these other basic needs met for like what's the point then how can you have democracy if you can't put food on your table and certain like survive a basic cold so you get to look at 32 different brands of cereal that you can't afford right. <laughs> right. yeah yay right and so i like I, I think those are really important points and they really cap they really capture i think uh, a lot of the issue one of the things without dissecting or getting too deeply into it that i i it tr reminds me of is the uh, the situation in china and hong kong and like one of the things i constantly hear is you know the chinese government is this that and the other thing and it's like well they've also lifted you know a, a bunch of people out of absolute poverty and like you mentioned it's like we in the West and under, you know, the educations that we receive and so on and so forth have certain ideas about how things are or perceptions that may not actually also match the realities and so on and so forth. And we we project a lot onto uh, people outside of the United States and assume that they all exist in that same kind of space mm -hmm. and, and, and exist in the same. And is like for a lot of uh, people around the world, it's like being able to have a uh, reliable shelter, food, basic transportation, these types of things are more important than a vote between a Democrat and a Republican, which amounts to essentially very little. And, <laughs> One and, and, party. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so like, uh, and, and uh, there's also a fact of uh, just the massive propaganda about China and the lack of the awareness of the levels of democracy that are integrated into China. And it's kind of the presentation of an, uh, an authoritarianism that doesn't match the, the actual realities on the ground as I've uh, understood them both uh, with uh, limited interaction with ch uh, mainland China, Chinese people and also uh, to reading. And so like, there's just a, like, you can't assume that how you see things and how you, how things exist in the U S is exactly one-to-one -one or, or everywhere around the world. And mm -hmm. that's a lesson that people in the U S seem to have to learn the hard way, usually by going and actually interacting with people around the world and being completely just discombobulated by how radically different 
their perception was to the reality when they actually confront and see those contradictions in place. And one of the other big contradictions that I think is what I think is a big struggling point between essentially people that are ostensibly left, but don't align more towards socialist or uh, communist uh, ideologies uh, and, and those that do is this concept of democracy and its compatibility with capitalism. And I think that that point that you like that you were touching on there as well is that essentially like the idea is that a democratic democratic capitalism is the ideal when the reality is democracy and capitalism are opposing forces, except uh, so what we've happened, what happened in the U S experiment is capitalists dominated the democracy. That that's what we have, and it's abundantly clear in every aspect, from the fundraising aspect to billionaires getting on debate stages to like every <laughs> like every, everything about it is is blatantly obvious. It's clear that, and it even uh, like it's even the Democrats have diagnosed the issue as uh, they're essentially beholden to capitalists, and mm-hmm. that's that's the bottom line is that in a capitalist system, your democracy will always be beholden to the capitalist class which isn't really a democracy in much more than name only and essentially what you end up with is a democracy of oligarchs so the oligarchs exist in a democracy and the government acts as a police force in between those oligarchs at the expense of the population whereas people perceive or believe that democracy makes our government a a essentially like an arbiter or a guard between us and those corporations. That's not the function that it fills maybe in an ideal world or at one point it may have to some degree or something along those lines. But the, what we see over and over in every capitalist experiment is that the democratic system gets dominated by the capitalist class. Every time the working class always loses out and becomes the weaker of the two in that system. And eventually, as we see in the United States, you eventually get one capitalist uh, class party that uh has two wings and make you choose between those wings of the same class or the same party and so that's essentially where it leads and that there's no redemption path through reform or through reform uh, as we've seen multiple times because any reform one takes too long to implement and it's always clawed back and within the system all it takes is for the the energy of the threat of the system collapsing that motivated the capitalists to make the concessions in the first place to subside for them to take it back and, and just wait until it reaches that breaking point again, where they fear the entire system will collapse if they don't make some moderate or slight concession towards the, the classes and people that they're exploiting. And it's, it's that kind of friction is like, well, I want, uh, democracy is good. I want democracy. And I'm also very comfortable in this capitalist system is I think usually what the other part of that is, is that people have a, a followed or uh, uh, I guess uh, to, to, to achieve any sort of the, the types of uh, the essentially liberation and dignity that the socialists and communist uh, groups are after requires uh, an abolition of the capitalist class because uh, if we want to preserve democracy like okay. it's like if you want to have like theoretically you might be able to have some sort of uh, uh, a cap a state capitalist like sort of hybrid with benevolent and all this kind of jazz that's not the point because it, essentially it becomes too dependent on individuals uh, being like as we see with Trump and that like respecting norms and expect, <laughs> expected behaviors that aren't actually uh, enforced 
through uh, mechanisms of, of either law or uh, uh, social ramifications, but essentially are just supposed to things. And, and, and when somebody comes along and doesn't do what they're supposed to, don't really have a viable mechanism to, to deal with it if they're popular enough, essentially. And so like, uh, I think it's important that then the ideology built into it is an expectation of not exploitation of not exploiting people and that's where capitalism fails is that uh, exploiting people is part of capitalism it just has to right. give you a reason to justify it exactly exactly it's all a pr game at the end of the day like this idea of saving capitalism or accountable capitalism or what is it uh, compassionate capitalism it's just it's like I said, it's like putting a bow on a pile of shit. And at the end of the day, it's still a pile of shit and putting a bow mm -hmm. on it isn't going to change. I'm sorry for the visuals, but you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this is, this is the problem. And I think that they're, you know, like you said about Bernie, as I said, I'm not really interested in wading into the Warren Sanders camp wars because I think both of them provide good ideas. They can both go further. One can go even further than the other one. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Um, but I think that there is, I, again, I think somewhat like when we talked about these platforms, it offers some hope a little bit. Like, okay, they're trying. They're trying to push for something different. Sanders more than Warren, I think. Um, but I really, I mean, just the fact that when you watch these debates and you see how the corporate media responds to people like Warren, who's even more moderate than Sanders. It really is baffling to me that like, I mean, I, I, I just, I, it makes you feel like, God, like they're even hard on her and she's not even going as far as Sanders is, you know? And it, it, it's like, how, how is this, how have we gotten to the point that this is radical, that what Elizabeth Warren says is radical? How? How did that happen? You know, we, know, we know, we know. I mean, that's not to say that we don't know how it happened, but it just, it still shocks me to this day that like, I can watch these debates and listen to these questions and, and just feel like I'm in the twilight zone because I, you know, if you know anyone outside of yourself, and even if you know your own situation, things are not easy. Like life is not easy, but it doesn't, and, not, and I'm not saying life needs to be easy, but I'm saying that like your basic needs need to be met. That should be the priority of your government. Your, the priority of your government shouldn't be, you know, giving corporations tax breaks. That just shouldn't be the priority. If you want to do that, cool, I guess. But don't make that your priority and that your, your primary goal is to keep corporations happy. Because corporations at the end of the day are not, as much as they try to tell us, they're not people. You know, like they are not, I don't know. I mean, they, they have the same rights as us at this point, if not more rights. And so it really, it's, I don't know. I always, I feel like I'm, I'm always ending these podcasts with like, hear me be depressed about like <laughs> the current state of affairs in America. And the thing is, it's like, it's always been bad. Like I, I, you know, I think sometimes people have this idea that like things are getting progressively better in the U S but depending on what you're talking about, things are getting progressively worse. Like certain resources are getting cut more and more than they used to be, you know, certain, certain things that were, um, you know, the norm in the 1940s are gone. Um, I think also certain basic, even civil rights and civil liberties protections are gone. Um, so sometimes it's hard for me to be optimistic. Um, as much as I say, you know, these platforms give me hope and whatever, but it is hard. And I try to keep up that optimism because I recognize that without it, we're doomed. But at the same time, it's like, it feels really dark right now. And it feels really dark in particular, because even the most like in comparison to so many other countries' political systems, the most moderate people on that stage are considered radicals. I mean, I think 
like I think Amy Klobuchar is radical, but in a negative way, right? Like she's she's mm-hmm. a Republican. And like for her to be considered a moderate, for Warren to be considered a moderate, for Sanders, I mean for I'm sorry, for for Warren and Sanders to be considered radical leftists, like, wow, you know, like where's your Mao t-shirt? It's insane to me. Like I just do not understand it. I will never understand it. And it's scary to me because I don't know how to like convince other people. I don't know how to convince my family members, for example, that like Biden is going to wreck the future for a lot of us. And like, it's going to get worse for you too, because even if you're older and you're about to kick the bucket, your social security benefits might get cut. You might not have decent healthcare, you know, fill in the blank. And so it just really, I don't know how to get people to like care beyond I mean, they don't even care about themselves. I was going to say beyond themselves, but I don't know how to get people to to, to care, period. Um, it's really, it's scary to me. I don't know. And I feel yeah. more and more like this every time we talk about these elections and political stuff in the United States. Well, it's really tough, I think, just because it's so overwhelmingly like depressing and anxiety-inducing and enraging that like the most practical and uh, one of the more common ways is just to numb it out, find a way to yeah. numb it out. Like whether it's, you know, a, a hobby, uh, whether it's addiction, whether it's whatever it is, uh, just find a way to, to, sub- to find a way to make the capitalist malaise subside enough so that you can at least make it through the day and kind of have some desire to wake up tomorrow. Right. Like, and it's like uh, it, it's and that's what I mean with the war of attrition. You know, it's like uh, I feel like the capitalist class is trying to break break us down so that until they can just completely dominate us uh, yeah. and that we can't fight back to where uh, like there is no way to organize. It's like that's their ideal. You know, that's what they're aiming for. And so uh, like ideally in, in, in a in a and I think the human spirit and so on and so forth is we'll always find a way. But they are doing their best to systemically and uh, like, uh, I don't know, comprehensively prevent the working class from ever achieving any sort of equity, dignity, and they're willing to sacrifice the future, the, 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 the entire social fabric of the future with the, the collapse of society as we know it with billions, over a billion people displaced, millions dying, so on and so forth. They're willing to sacrifice all of that to secure more wealth. And mm-hmm. it's like clear, clearly to me, it's an addiction. It's like they're addicted. There's no, the, there's nothing that they're going to have with their thirty fifth billion that they couldn't have had with their thirty fourth billion. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like there's no other explanation for that other than uh, a desire for domination and an addiction to to wealth. And so like uh, their addiction, they they will kill us with their addiction. Uh, unlike they're not gonna, they're not going to literally come in your house and and steal your TV off your wall to buy drug money. But what they are going to do is make it to where you can't even like your house is uninhabitable because the environment around it has collapsed while selling you a TV to escape that reality. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is a very good way to put it. Um, and on that note, <laughs> on that very dystopian note about our present and God, I hope not our future. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, I appreciate being able to just get these things out there. And like, <laughs> like you said before, like, you know, seeing these platforms like, oh, I'm not I'm not, you know, off off my out or out of my mind. You know, it's like it's 
these, these are thoughts that other people share and mm-hmm. and like you know these come from not just you know other people just experiencing life not that their uh, opinions and perspectives aren't valuable but like these are also these ideas and thoughts also echo in people that spend a lot of time and effort to both educate and inform themselves about these topics and do further expanding of uh, human knowledge in these areas by uh, expanding our all of our political imaginations uh, with ideas that we're unfamiliar with or that we've never even been exposed to before. And so I, I, I don't know what which iteration of that is going to be the one that helps facilitate that transitional moment, but I do feel that uh, in combination and in reiteration and in modification and in advancement that there is something there that that can lead us there and and so we just got to keep working for it decolonize your block make your neighborhood better you know yeah (laughs) there's um by the way this is obviously not the last time we're going to discuss these platforms we'll go into further depth um on some of them later on like i said as the 2020 election continues um and obviously like everything we discuss on here it's cumulative so there's a lot of stuff that we may learn or talk about in the meantime that will add further to this discussion um, and people with whom we will speak, hopefully, um, in the future that can add very uh, specific things to this discussion as well, as they are, they hopefully will be, you know, members of the party or representatives from the parties themselves. Um, but yeah, I really, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> what's new in that, but I, I agree with you with your, with your, both your diagnosis and your assessment of, you know, what's going on and what may what the future may hold, um, but also, you know, about the parties themselves and what, what they're doing and how it's significant and helps us as we sort of think through um, how that future could maybe be made better. Um, the other thing is, I just wanted to say a big thank you once again and always to all of our patrons and everybody who follows the Left Pocket Project and who retweets and shares and comments and friends and loves posts and all of that. It's been a real big Um, help to us actually, because as I said, you know, sometimes we have these discussions and we may have on a guest or whatever and be talking about something and just kind of feel like we're talking to ourselves. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's really nice to always be reminded that like we have a really cool crew of people that um, interact with us and that are, you know, reading what we're reading and reading right along with us, learning at the same time as us. Um, So I really, really appreciate it. I know Richard does too. Um, And absolutely. Yeah, and I just yeah, just want to say thanks to everybody. Um, in so far as upcoming shows, we do have some guests in the pipeline. Um, I'm going to be out for a few weeks in November just for a conference, and because I'm really busy right now. Um, and also, we'll be out a few months after that. Uh, but I'll always give you guys a heads up, and hopefully, I can either have a filler episode or some sort of. Um, something going on in the meantime for people to read. Uh, the other thing is don't forget to check out the show notes because they have there posted um, the platforms that we discussed in brief during this episode. So you can find the full platforms and party programs for the Party of Socialism and Liberation, PSL. You can also find similar information from the Green Party and from the Communist Party of the United States. And like I said, as we go on, we may discuss other parties' platforms as well, but there are a lot of overlap um, moments between a lot of the smaller um, left parties, but still some some room to really discuss a few differences. So hopefully we'll get to do that a little bit in the future. Uh, yeah, so thanks everyone. 
try to enjoy what's left of your day if you're listening to this in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you're listening to this at night, may you have sweet dreams and not have nightmares of the capitalist dystopia in which we currently find ourselves. Uh, but thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much again. Have a good one. Thank you all.